The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher that has ever lived. Amen? His name was Jesus. But it was Augustine of Hippo who, he's the North African theologian that lived a long time ago. He's the one that coined this, the Sermon on the Mount. And it really wasn't a mountain that he preached on. It was more of a mound outside of Capernaum alongside the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful, beautiful area. The pictures that I've seen of it have been breathtaking. But when you consider the Sermon on the Mount, consider it like this. Have you ever been to a place where you could drop a rock down into a hole in the earth or maybe off of a bridge and you can't see the bottom, maybe the mist or the shroud of fog is there, and you drop that rock and you're listening for it to hit the bottom? Well, I'm discovering that if this sermon does have a bottom, I haven't heard the rock hit yet. I don't think it has a bottom. Because I believe it is the foundation of everything that Christ preached. Every single thing that Christ preached in all of the Gospels finds its foundation, its springboard in this sermon. Now, let me expand that a little bit more. You ready? Every teaching that you're going to find in all of the epistles finds its origin, its connection back to this sermon. This is an incredible sermon, and it's one that is well worth an intense look, which is what we're going to be doing. It's incredibly deep. It's an unbelievable privilege to preach it. It's an extremely challenging sermon to live. Today, what I want to do is I want to give you some background that will help us as we navigate through this series. We're going to be in this series for several months, all the way to the end of October. That's how much is in this sermon. That's how important that it is for us. So what we're going to do is today is I'm going to show you two main points. And in the first point, I'm going to give you three sub-points. And so the second main point is going to be a ton of background, a backdrop of Judaism. What did discipleship look like back in the day of Jesus? But let me begin by this. This is a very very undertaught doctrine, what I'm about to tell you. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the king and his kingdom. Matthew's gospel proclaims that God's kingdom has come, and this sermon describes the lifestyle of those who belong to that kingdom. But have you heard much or have you read much on the kingdom of God? Most of us likely have not. And if you have read some, and if you have heard some sermons on it, there is a good chance that while it's popular within the last 15 to 20 years, it's not always helpful and it's not always biblically accurate. So it's important to have a few insights. So let me give you three key insights. Let me encourage you to write these down. This might seem, well, this is kind of the boring section. This is absolutely important. This, this lays out the infrastructure for the entire gospel of Matthew. Number one, the kingdom of God has broken into this world, but its fullness is yet to come. Now, there are some of you that are very theologically savvy. You love theology, you love to talk about it, you love to debate it, you love to teach it. So if that's you, let me give you a theological phrase 
that is not complicated when I explain it. It's called inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is the ology of study, the study of the end times. Inauguration is what we just saw with, with President Trump. It's the beginning, the breakout of something, the origin of something. So the inaugurated eschatology says this, the kingdom of God has begun but it's not yet fully here and it won't be fully here until Christ returns. That's all that that really means. And what we began to see or what we can begin to see and understand, you remember John the Baptist, remember he said this. This is, this is John the Baptist's sermon. This is the core of his, his sermon, his thesis. Here's what he preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now take your Bibles and go back to chapter four of Matthew. And you're going to find that Jesus preached the same message word for word. He didn't change anything. He said in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he began his preaching. That was a thesis. His entire ministry taught about and demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God. Look at chapter 4, look at verse 23 of Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what he's doing, he's proclaiming. That's a word for preaching. He's preaching about the kingdom, and then he's demonstrating what it's going to look like in part now, but in full later. There will be no more disease when the kingdom is finally consummated. When it arrives in its fullness, there's not going to be any death. There won't be any wars. There won't be any slavery. There won't be any abuse. No more tears. No more sin. The kingdom of God will finally and fully be here. We have a foretaste of it now. This is what he's preaching. In fact, Acts, the book of Acts closes. And you have Paul who is in prison and in Rome. He's not yet been executed. He will be there for two years. And what's he doing? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All the way through the Bible, you're going to read from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You're going to read about the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. We have a foretaste of it now in our day. But what will come when Christ restores his full kingdom, when he restores all things to his kingdom and he reigns over all, there will be no more suffering. But now if you're pretty astute, you realize I haven't yet defined what the kingdom of God is. I'm just getting to that. We're nibbling at the edges. Let me get one more layer in on point number two. The kingdom of God is made up of God's redeemed people. John 3, verse 5 says this so clearly. Truly, truly, Jesus preached, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, meaning unless you're born again, unless you're saved, you cannot enter, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the only way to find entrance into the kingdom of God is through salvation in Christ. The kingdom of God exists. It does not exist geographically. It exists where the heart of a person bows to the king in submission. That's where the kingdom of God is at work. 
And the kingdom of God grows as God's people are making disciples of Jesus Christ. The church is the kingdom of God made visible. Now listen, be careful. Don't put an equal sign between God's kingdom and the church because that would not be right. The kingdom of God is much broader than the church. But the church is the visible expression that proves to you that the kingdom of God has come. The church is where Christ the King is reigning and ruling and bringing about his disciples who will bring about the redemption and the restoration of this earth. Our mission at Cornerstone is not, get the negative, it's not to make eastern Pennsylvania, the east end of the Lehigh Valley, a Christian region. That's not what we're trying to do. That's not even possible. It's not even in the purview of the gospel. What we want to do, what we're trying to do, is we're wanting to see people in the east end of the Lehigh Valley become disciples of Jesus Christ. And the moment that a person trusts in the saving death and resurrection of Christ, look what Paul says happens in Colossians. And that person is delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So every person on earth is born, just like we were, here in the kingdom of the world. This is where we live. The world reigns. The world rules. The world is the power that is in opposition to God. What happens when you trust Jesus is the Spirit of God takes you out of there instantly and he puts you into the kingdom of God where Christ is ruling and reigning in a different way, in a beneficent way, in a way of blessings. The king of this kingdom is Jesus, Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, the beloved son. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us how we who live here, who belong to God in his kingdom, how we are to live. What's our lifestyle to be? And the sermon will show us what Jesus is doing in our hearts, and what he's doing in our lives as we live in his kingdom. You know what the Sermon on the Mount is? It's his training course. It's his discipleship manual. It's the goal of his instruction and redeemed life. And it leads us to a third final subpoint. And now I'm going to truly define for you what the kingdom of God is. Here it is. The kingdom of God is the rule or reign or power of God specifically over his redeemed people. Now, don't think for a moment that God does not rule over all creation. He is sovereign. He is Elohim, the creator, ruler, God. All things are in subjection to him. But it is only in his kingdom that God's beneficent blessings, love, and mercy without limit that are new every morning flow. If you're in God's kingdom, you have him ruling over you with power and blessing. If you are in the kingdom of God and you are in the kingdom of the world and you die in this kingdom, you will have God ruling and reigning over you and the power of his wrath. It is only here in his kingdom that his unbridled blessings flow. The kingdom of God is the rule or reign of God specifically over his redeemed people. Now, the word kingdom, by the way, probably conjures up in your mind thrones, castles, knights, kings. But biblically, the word doesn't refer to an area geographically. It refers to three words, rule, reign, and power. 
And while as God is, again, sovereign over all creation, he is benevolent. He redemptively reigns over his people. The Sermon on the Mount, right? Now, this is why I'm telling you all this. The Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus the King and his kingdom that he rules and how he is teaching those in his kingdom how to bring about his redemptive, restoring work. And with that, we got to go to point number two. And here's the meat of the message. Here's where it's going to get really, really, I think, interesting for you. The Sermon on the Mount is all about discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is all about discipleship. Now, my father owned a construction company. He built churches and homes and schools all over New York. And so, of course, I was drafted in. Now, some of you aren't listening to this, and I'm telling you right now, this is setting up the rest of the sermon. He drafted me into working with him, and I remember we would frame out a job, and when we got to the framing stage, he often would give me a job. He'd give me the measurement of the boards he wanted me to cut, and he would tell me, go make 15, 20, 30 of them. And I made a mistake the first time I did it. I really learned from it. Here's the mistake I made. I went, took the measurement. Let's say it was uh, 10 feet. I measured my first board at 10 feet. I cut it. Then I used that board to measure my next one. And then I used the one I just cut to measure my next one. And I did that all the way down the line. And by the time I'm handing him the 10th, 15th, 20th board, actually, I think it was a 10th, he said, Tim, you're an inch short. And I think I know what you did. He came back over and he said, listen, you cut your first one, that's your pattern board, that's your sample. And all the rest of them, after you measure it to make sure it's right, all the rest of them, you cut to that one board. Now that illustration of what I just taught you, what I learned, forms for you the backdrop of Jewish discipleship. They were experts in making disciples. They understood the danger of what I had done in mismeasuring all of those boards. And they created a careful system of making disciples that was alive and well when Jesus called his own. It provides the backdrop of the book of Matthew. It weaves itself through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus the rabbi training his disciples to follow him so that they can live in his kingdom and bring about his work. They're going out into the fields of the world to do the work of the kingdom so that people would come into saving faith. And how they did that was they were trained as his disciples. What's going to serve as well then is to look and understand at what disciple making looked like in Jesus' day. So Matthew chapter 5, here we go. Verse 1. We're just going to look at two verses today. Read with me if you would. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, or when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And we're going to look at the rest of that in a couple weeks. The Sermon on the Mount, you've got to understand the cultural setting to understand what's going to happen. So let me do that for you. By the way, the Jewish people lived in two main regions in that day. They lived in the north and they lived in the south. The Samaritan people lived in the middle of the two. Samaritans were half Jewish people. 
The southern Jews, where Jerusalem, the temple, was located, the southern Jews looked at the northern Jews as uneducated peasants, irreligious, because they lived among the Gentiles. They looked at themselves down south as the purebred Jews. So there was animosity. That's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Galilee? And referring to Jesus. He was from Capernaum, which is a Galilean town. But the opposite is actually true. The people of Galilee, the Jews of Galilee, were incredibly well taught. They had a, an, an intact school system. And it looked like what I'm about to explain to you. Now, it began, by the way, in a building. It's it centered in a building called the synagogue. We pattern evangelical churches, even a raised platform and a pulpit, after Jewish synagogues. Jewish synagogues began during the Babylonian exile when the Jews were 600 miles from Jerusalem and they couldn't make it to the temple to worship. So they created these synagogues. Almost every town had them. Larger cities had multiple synagogues and it's where they would hold school for their children. There was a synagogue ruler, but then there was a synagogue rabbi whom the community hired to be the teacher, the school teacher of the children. The first phase of school for children began at age six for both boys and girls. It was called Bet Sefer. Bet is spelled Beth in English and means house. Bet Sefer means house of the book. Because what they would do at six years old all the way to ten years old in Bet Sefer, which was elementary school, they would study the teachings of the Torah. The Torah were the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. You've got the five of them. You've got Genesis. You've got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now listen to this. Children would learn to read it. And they would learn to memorize large sections of it. Why? Most teaching was oral. Because unlike us, and this is why I stress this all the time, not until about the 1600s did the common person have access to the Word of God. It was expensive. They were written, handwritten on scrolls. They could not have any mistakes. The scribes and the copyists would make them. The synagogue would buy them. They were costly. There would be one scroll or maybe more in the writings of the scriptures in the synagogue. And if you wanted to read it and you wanted to memorize it, you had to come to the synagogue because your home isn't going to have one. So they would memorize large portions of it. Now, this is amazing. Some children, the best of the best, would memorize the entire first five books of the Bible by the time they were 10. And what would happen at the time of, of, of the age of 10 is that girls now could go no further in their academic system. They went back home to work in the family, into the home, because in usually in the next two to three years, most of them are getting married. The boys who were good students had the option to go on to the next phase of schooling, kind of our high school. It was called uh, Bet Talmud. This means the house of the book, or the house rather, uh, not of the book, the house of learning. This was for male students only from 10 years to 14 years. And now they're studying the prophets of the Old Testament, more than just the first five books. Now they're studying the oral Torah. The oral Torah are all of the interpretations that the rabbis made 
on the first five books of the Bible. So all of these 613 rules that you cannot eat a gnat, which moved Pharisees to drink their wine because they made wine in an open bat system and they would get bugs in them. And Leviticus says that a gnat is an unclean bug. And so they would drink wine with their teeth clenched. And when they were done, they would pick them out of their teeth and throw them away. They learned all of these oral traditions in this second phase of school called Bet Talmud. They began to make their own applications, similar to modern catechism classes, most of them not having the copy of the scriptures. Again, they memorized. Memorization was key. And it was done by over and over reciting the scriptures out loud, constant repetition. And now they learned a really remarkable, unique to the rabbinical system method of learning. And you see this all through the Gospels. When the rabbi asks you a question, you answer by asking a question in return that will get to the depth of the knowledge. They learned this in the second school called Bet Talmud. Only the best of the best made it beyond Bet Talmud. And if you were the best of the best, you now entered into Bet Midrash, the house of study. And what was allowed now was for you, it can only be guys, you to seek out a rabbi and ask for permission from that rabbi to study with him. And you would often leave home if you were accepted. You would leave home and you would travel and you would live with that rabbi for a lengthy period of time. And the rabbi would conduct a very rigorous interview with you. See, they wanted to know, the rabbi wanted to know if you were a student that had really applied yourself in Bet Sefer and Bet Talmud, because only the best of the best they're going to take. They only want the best students. And so they would ask you questions not only to see if you applied yourself and if you learned, but if you had the discipline to really become like him, the goal of discipleship. Questions would be asked if you were in that interview like these. How many times does the word well occur in the book of Genesis? You were expected to know the answer. Or how often did Habakkuk, the minor prophet, refer to Deuteronomy 17 in his writings? You would be expected to know these answers. And if you failed, if you did not come up to the level of the rabbi's expectations and demands, he would say to you these words, and I'm quoting, go home Learn your father's business, make babies, and pray that they will one day grow up to be rabbis. That's what they would say. If you came up to the expectations of the rabbi, he would look at you at the end of that interview, and he would say two words in Hebrew, which, when translated into English, are three words, and they're going to sound very familiar to you. Here they are. Come, follow me. He would invite them into his discipleship. Every Jewish young man longed to hear those words from a rabbi. And it brings meaning. Look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Now it brings some meaning when Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, he'll say it often, he said, follow me. That's the rabbinical invitation to become his disciples. And I will make you fishers of men. Now, ordinarily, in Judaism, a student would come to a rabbi. Jesus mostly reversed that. 
Interestingly, none of the 12 men that he went to, that he chose, had ever made it past the rabbi test. They had not been the best of the best. In fact, most probably, likely, never made it past Bet Talmud. This is the difference between Jesus. He's not looking for the elite of the world. He's looking for those the Father has given to him. He says, come, follow me. Now, the moment a rabbi accepted the student, the student changed from being a student to what was called a Talmud. It's a word that means disciple. You see, a disciple is way more than a student. A student wants to know what the teacher knows for the grade to complete the class. The goal, now listen, this is the most important thing I'm telling you right now, so far. The goal and the passion of the Talmud was to be like the rabbi, to become what the rabbi was. And if the rabbi accepted you, you became his Talmud, and he taught you to become like him in every way. In fact, there's documentation that demonstrates this. There was a rabbi that had his Talmud D, that's plural for Talmud, that's a group of disciples. And he was walking along, and the rabbi, listen to this, the rabbi had a limp. All of his disciples behind him walked with the same identical limp. This was the goal of Jewish rabbinical discipleship, to make your Talmud just like you in every single way. And if he accepted you, if he accepted you, then his goal, his passion, was to, be, to make you like the rabbi, to become what the rabbi was. And if he accepts you, you become the Talmud. You become his Talmud. And he teaches you to become like him in every way. A Talmud was passionately devoted to his rabbi. He noted everything that the rabbi would say. He noted everything that the rabbi would do. He learned to imitate him. Now listen, Paul the apostle grew up in this system. He was a Pharisee, studied under Gamaliel, the best of the best. There were two notable main rabbis. I'll talk about this in a moment. In the day of Jesus, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul studied under Gamaliel. This Jewish system of discipleship was bred into him. It was woven into him. And he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. He wrote and he said this. Now listen to this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's Jewish discipleship. One rabbinical saying was this. May you follow the rabbi so closely that the dust of his sandals covers you. Watching, listening, imitating, these were all core practices to becoming like the rabbi. The teaching, the, and by the way, this is the second most important thing. And by the way, this is going to detonate in some of your minds like dynamite because you're going to immediately connect us to the word of God. The teaching, the philosophy, the interpretation of scripture that a rabbi had, unique from other rabbis, was called the yoke. Now the fuse ought to be lit. The rabbi would speak to groups of people. He would invite them to take his yoke upon them, their interpretation of uh, his interpretation of the scriptures. He would invite people to submit and yield to his interpretation. Jesus does this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my interpretation upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now get your Bibles out. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. And let me show you how different this was to the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew chapter 23 is a message of condemnation from Jesus to the scribes, to the Pharisees. And he writes and he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit, verse 2, on Moses' seat. They've got his authority. I'll introduce that in a moment. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What he's saying is this. The yoke of the Pharisees and scribes is all moralistic teaching that does not give you the power to do it. My yoke, my interpretation, my teaching comes with the power of the Spirit of God to help you live it. It's called the gospel of grace. This is all woven into Jewish discipleship. It's all about the yoke that Jesus has brought. So when, you, when, you, when the rabbi decides to let you be his Talmud, the demand was one of total submission. No Talmud could agree to come into the rabbi's discipleship and say, I'm only going to obey you to this point. He would reject you immediately. The disciple, in fact, transferred allegiance to the rabbi from his own father. He had to regard the rabbi more highly than his own family. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You're not worthy to be my Talmud. You've got to make me the most authoritative person in your life. I need to become your rabbinical father. It was inconceivable to become a disciple and not be consumed with learning to totally yield to the rabbi in order to become like him in every way. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his rabbi, like his teacher, and that's Jewish discipleship. The Talmud, the disciple, was to live with the rabbi, to be with him, to learn his ways, to imitate his ways, to submit to his yoke, his teaching, his authority, his interpretations. I want you to remind or remember, recall, if you would, Jesus is walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. He's walking on top of the water. And all of his Talmudi are in the boat. And he begins to walk by them. And, Jesus, and Peter, one of his Talmud, sees Jesus and cries out, Rabbi, call me to you. Now what's going on in this is that the Talmud truly believed that they could become and do whatever their rabbi could do. That was the Jewish mindset. So Peter says, call me to you, and Jesus does. And Peter walks on the water towards Jesus. And then all of a sudden, his eyes get on the waves that the wind is whipping. And he begins to sink. And Jesus walks to him and extends his hand. And he says these words, why did you doubt? What does he mean? 
And what he's getting at is this. Why did you doubt that I could help you do what I do and be what I am? Why are you doubting that? I am your rabbi. You are my Talmud. This is all woven into Jewish discipleship. This is how a Talmud believed. This is how a Talmud lived. And when a rabbi garnered a large following, Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Gamaliel, when they garnered a large following, they were granted semicha. That means authority. That word, by the way, also means ordination, and it's used in bar mitzvahs today. They were granted semicha, authority. What that means is this. Now look at me. This is utterly important. That means now they've got the authority to make new and fresh interpretations of the Torah, of the scriptures. You had to be granted that. Pastor Matthew showed me this. You've got to be granted this by another rabbi who possesses Semecha. Jesus was granted it by the Father in heaven at his baptism, by the evidence of the Spirit coming down on him like a dove, by the proclamation and the witness of John the Baptist. He was granted Semecha, which you're going to see in a minute in the Great Commission. But look what Matthew says at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had semicha, authority, and not as their scribes. You know what that means is this. A rabbi without semicha quoted from rabbis who had semicha. So they were always quoting those rabbis who were given authority. Jesus did not do that. His authority was intrinsic. He did not quote other rabbis only as if to negate what they were saying or correct what they're saying. He kept saying, truly, truly, I say to you. That's the statement of those who have semicha, who have authority. If the Talmud stayed with the rabbi long enough, they themselves would then become rabbis, and they would pass on what they learned to their own Talmudi, their own disciples. And this disciple-making, listen, this was woven into Judaism. This was woven into their context of making disciples. It was so woven that when King Agrippa brought the Apostle Paul on trial before him in Acts, just before they sent him to Rome where he would be executed, King Agrippa said, explain to us, tell us what is all of the commotion about. He opened the door for Paul to preach the gospel and declare his confidence in Christ. At the end of Paul's declaration, King Agrippa said this to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to act like a Christian? And it was so forceful, what Paul was doing was making a disciple. He was presenting to King Agrippa the invitation to be a Talmud of Christ, to imitate Christ, to follow Jesus. And Agrippa pushed back, and they sent him to Rome. You see, Jewish discipleship was all about becoming like the rabbi in every way. And when you were trained fully, the disciple became the teacher. And he had his own Talmudi. And he trained them to be like themselves. Now, that's where the problem was. That's why I told you about my construction faux pas. 
You see, the rabbi would train you to be like him in every way. And then you would go out and train your disciples to be like you in every way. And then they would go out when they became fully trained to train disciples to be like them in every way and every generation further and further removed from the original rabbi. That's not what Jesus has asked us to do. His discipleship looks very different. And what we're about to see, what we're about to see in heaven, or rather in the, in the end of Matthew's gospel, is Jesus saying to his Talmudi, all authority, all semicha, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, your rabbi. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe my yoke, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. I will never, ever leave you. I will give you the power to do this. You see, what Jesus taught his disciples is this. And you see it in Matthew 23. This is what's different about the scribes and Pharisees. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one rabbi, one teacher, and you are all Talmudi, you are all brothers. And call no man your father, because I have taken the place of your father. I am your rabbinical father. Don't, it's not don't call any biological man your father. It's don't, call, don't let any other earthly teacher gain the authority and be your rabbinical father. For you have one father who is in heaven, neither be called instructors. Don't let your yoke be what is put on other people. Take my yoke and give it to other people. This is the beauty of the entire Sermon on the Mount. What we've got in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, who's been given all semicha, who is teaching his yoke so that we, his Talmudi, can become like him, and when we're fully trained, make other disciples become like Jesus. How do you do it? That's what we're going to learn in the Sermon on the Mount. You get to the Beatitudes, which is the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount, first 12 verses. You're going to see the most perfect written revelation of what Jesus looks like and what he is making you and me look like as his disciples. And then you're going to get to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 on to the end of chapter 7. And you're going to see the most perfect display in written form of how Jesus lived. And you're going to understand this is how he is helping you to live, his Talmudi. He is making you like him, to be perfectly like him in every way. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The entire sermon is the exposition of Jesus. He's our rabbi. We are his Talmudi. And he has invited us to follow him and take his yoke upon us. And his Semecha has sent us with a mission around the world, wherever you live, to make disciples that will look like him. The king in the kingdom, the king in his kingdom. It's a sermon series. You can take a long look at how Jesus trained his disciples and how he is training us to build this kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.